Good morning. Merry Christmas. Happy Ugly Shirt Day, apparently. Ugly Shirt Day. You're wearing that just because, right? Uh, yeah. Don't bet. Children, <laughs> don't bet. Uh. <laughs> Pastor Jeff, you forgot something. <laughs> A little early Christmas present, I see. You gotta be kidding me. I think you should wear it. I think you should wear it. I think I think everyone would like to see <laughs> Jeff. Yeah, put it on, Jeff. <laughs> you are so fired. <laughs> <laughs> that was Andrew's idea, actually. <laughs> no, 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 no. no. <laughs> They're all gone. <laughs> uh oh. I put those on Facebook I see some this morning. Yeah, yeah, I see some. Woo. Uh. <laughs> Don't tell me that's open for the Bible. That's a camera. <laughs> I should probably pray. Please. <laughs> Father, thanks for this time that we have this morning just to open your word and uh, to study it together. We ask that you'll convict our hearts by the power of your spirit, and we just give this time to you uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with us to the first chapter of John. We're going to be spending some time there this morning. Um, and I'm just going to start by reading John 1. Uh, one to five. So follow along with me as I read. It says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. A number of years ago, I was having lunch with a couple of high school students, and they just wanted to learn a little more about studying the Bible. So we flipped our Bibles open around the lunch table to John chapter 1, and we read through this passage. And I just started by asking a really simple question. Uh, what do you think the word is in this passage? And these couple high school guys, without skipping a beat, they said, oh, it's the Bible. Uh, and I said, okay, let's, let's substitute the Bible for word uh, in this passage and read it. So I read, in the beginning was the Bible. And the Bible was with God, and the Bible was God. And I asked them, does that make sense? And they said, no, it doesn't make sense. The word in this passage isn't the Bible. Uh, instead, John is using a synonym to refer to Jesus. But the meaning here, it's, it's deeper than just uh, a synonym, but it's a deep metaphor that gives us some great insight into the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because the Greek word uh, for word is logos. It can mean a lot of different things from a verbal statement uh, to a message. But John means something different than that. It, it's used here to describe God's tangible revelation to humanity. Uh, think of it this way. 95% of American families send a Christmas card every year. Did you send a Christmas card this year, Andrew? I never got one from you. Huh. You know? No. <laughs> so, I was trying to think of something witty there, but uh, nothing. Nope, okay, nope, well, nope, nope. so you're in the five percent. That's we're in okay. The five percent representing. Yeah, well, that's us. That, an average family sends seventy cards. That's over four billion Christmas cards, cards every single year. And this trend started back in the 1800s when museum director Henry Cole would send a written card to all of his friends at Christmas. But as the holidays do, sometimes they got too busy for him in 1843. So he had an artist friend draw a picture card and he sent that to his friends instead. And that's how the Christmas card began. And at my house, uh, we love getting Christmas cards. We hang them up on uh, a window in our living room uh, and we just love receiving those. I mean, this is one of the favorites that I got this year. 
Those look like two happy Amen. Packers fans right there. <laughs> you know, that's a rare sight this season, two smiling Packers it, fans. It is a rare sight this season. <laughs> that's an improvement. <laughs> now, these Christmas cards, they're a picture of the family, but it's not the same as Isaiah and Jared coming into my living room to watch a Packer game, for example, right? Jesus isn't God's Christmas card to us. He's not just a picture of God. He's, just not, he's not just a message from God. But it's God taking on human form and human flesh and coming to a, for a visit to earth. That's uh, what it means for Jesus to be the Logos, the Word. And God's revealed himself to us in many different ways, through creation, through Scripture. But as we think about the incarnation, the coming of Jesus into the world, God's divine revelation reached its climax and its ultimate fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate logos. He's the message and the personal revelation of God himself. But John doesn't want us to miss that Jesus is fully God and fully man. So he takes some time at the beginning of our passage this morning just to help us understand what it means for Jesus to be fully God. So he says right at the beginning, in the beginning was the word. That Jesus has always existed. That Jesus did not just begin to exist, as some faith traditions suggest, but he's eternally preexistent. And the structure of this verse points to Genesis 1-1, which says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So Jesus it wasn't just there at the creation of the world, but even as verse 2 in our passage says, Jesus is the one who created, created it. It was Jesus who carried out God's plan in creation. That's what Paul alludes to in Colossians one uh, verse 16, where he says this, For by him, being Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus was the word that carried out God's plan in creation. Well, second, the word was with God. This is a Greek word that literally means toward, which suggests more than just coexistence. John emphasizes a deep and meaningful relationship between the members of the Trinity, that Jesus has been eternally in relationship with the Father, not as subordinate in nature, but as co-equal with the Father. It's different than the dynamic around the table. Andrew and I are subordinate to the ever-wise Reverend Dr. And Jeffrey reminded Hines. reminded about it often from the <laughs> Reverend Dr. Hines as well. <clears throat> oh my. We pay homage. <laughs> But that's different than the dynamic in the Trinity, right? Jesus uh, has always been and will always be fully God. So on Christmas, the baby that you and I celebrate in the manger is not just an ordinary child, but he's fully God, the creator and savior of the world. And we believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man. It's one of the tier one issues of the faith. What does a tier one mean? Yeah, a tier one issue is uh, an issue that all Christians need to subscribe to, that all genuine believers believe. But there's some supposed Christian groups that try to reconcile this by reducing Jesus' deity, by saying things like, Jesus was just a God, but not the God, or he was uh, just the highest creation of God, or he was a son of God, but not the son of God. But after reading just these first couple verses in John, it doesn't get a lot clearer than this, that Jesus is God. He's the creator, and he's always existed in relationship with the Father. Because what someone believes about Jesus is a litmus test for the quality of their faith. I mean, remember what James says. Even the demons believe in God and shudder. 
And we know that the demons won't be joining Christians in heaven someday. But what someone believes about Jesus specifically demonstrates the, the status of their faith, of their heart. For someone to believe that Jesus was just a good teacher or a prophet is not enough to be saved. But to be saved, we have to believe that Jesus, fully God and fully man, came to earth and lived the life that we needed to live. He died the death that we deserve to die and was resurrected from the dead so that we could have life. Christmas is a time for us to remember and worship that little baby in a manger who's God. And God's chosen to reveal himself to us through Christ. And it's easy for us to get wrapped up in the craziness that surrounds the Christmas season. The presents, the Christmas cards that Andrew didn't send, the family gatherings, the decorations, the white elephant gift exchanges. But Jesus is what matters most about Christmas. And the season can afford us some great opportunities to talk about that little baby in a manger. To our friends, our, our relatives, our neighbors that need to hear about him. We can just ask a simple question like, what, what do you believe about Jesus? What do you think about that baby in a manger? Because Jesus is the light, as verse 4 in our passage says. And you and I, as Christians, we have the task, the responsibility to take that light, that message, that word to our friends, our, our coworkers, our neighbors, our relatives that still live in darkness. And you know, as, as we seek to share the truth of, of Christ during the Christmas season, it seems like we get a little bit longer of an opportunity to each year. Doesn't it seem like the Christmas season's growing a little earlier and longer every single year? Okay, so the, one of my neighbors, for instance, this year they had their lights, their Christmas lights, both hung and lit before October 31st, before Halloween. Happy Halloween. Now, I love Christmas decor and Christmas lights as much as the next guy, but I think we can all agree October's pushing it a little too far. Even Pastor Isaiah, our Wausau campus Christmas kook, I think would even say that's a little too far. You should see him in his sweater today. He's running around here looking like Elf again. Like, oh, just or like that like, picture. Yeah. Wow. Or that picture. Oh, look at little Isaiah. Isaiah. He's loved Christmas since age Six, however old he is. Now, anyway, so <laughs> Christmas lights, my neighbor put them out far too early. Uh, but regardless, I, I think Christmas lights are something that we love to do around Christmas time. That's one of my family's favorite pastimes. Uh, growing up, we loved those big porcelain, multicolored Christmas bulbs. The one from the 70s that if you leave it on for more than 10 minutes, they can burn your house down. You, you know the one <laughs> I'm, I'm talking about? Yeah, those were our favorites to hang. And uh, we love Christmas lights, but a lot of people don't really know the origin of where we started using lights to celebrate Christmas. Well, please tell us. <laughs> I, I can tell you're just, you're on the edge of your seat, aren't you, Edge Jeff? of my seat. <laughs> so, little did you know, Fun fact, history fun fact of the day. It was the late 1600s when people started to use lights to celebrate Christmas. People would take small candles and attach them to the Christmas tree with melted wax and yarn and then light it and, and, and that's how they began decorating their Christmas trees. And the whole reason they did that came from our passage today. The passage that talks about Jesus being the true light of the world. So they used the Christmas lights to celebrate the fact that Jesus, the true light, came into a dark and broken world. Now, about 100 years ago, we stopped attaching candles to pine trees because someone realized, realized that, you know, attaching multiple little torches to dead uh, trees probably isn't the brightest idea in the world. So now we use bulbs, but the, the message remains the same. Every time we see a Christmas light, we should pause and remember that light is reminding us that Jesus is the true light of the world. And in Christmas, we're celebrating his coming into this broken world 
to fix it, to repair it, to reconcile it to God. So let's look at verses uh, 9 right as we get started in this next section. It says this in verse 9. The true light, being Jesus, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Jesus came into the world, into the created universe, to be the true light for all mankind. But what exactly does that metaphor mean? What does it mean that Jesus is the light? What does it mean that Jesus is the light for all mankind, for all people? Well, I think this verse is pointing to the fact that Jesus is the ultimate source of God's self-disclosure and God's self-revelation to the world. Because think about it. By its very nature, what does light do? It illuminates. It reveals. It exposes. And that's precisely what Jesus does. Jesus reveals who God truly is to us. So that when Jesus says in the Gospels that anyone that has seen the Son has seen the Father, anyone who has a relationship with Son knows the Father, it's through Jesus revealing those things to us. But you know, Jesus also exposes something else. Jesus exposes our desperate need for a Savior. As we encounter Jesus, our sin our brokenness, our failures, our depravity becomes unmistakable. Through the incarnation, God proclaims a message that sinful humanity needs a perfect mediator, a perfect savior to reconcile us to God. And the gospel message is clear. Jesus is the only agent of reconciliation. He is the only person who can bring us back into a relationship with God. And as that true light of the gospel, as Jesus shines forth, we all have two options, don't we? Scripture makes it clear we can either draw close to the light and run away from the darkness and draw to G uh, come to Jesus. Or there are many people who turn away from the light and try to hide their sin, their brokenness, their shame, and conceal it back in the darkness. So think about, think about it this way. To the human eye, my hands look fairly clean right now. They actually look very clean, right? There's no yeah. grime. On, they're yeah. very clean. There's no grime on them. There's no dirt underneath uh, my fingernails. But you know, if you looked at my hands under the right light, they might not look so clean anymore. There's actually a, a gel that you can use that if you put any surface with that gel under ultraviolet light, it shows all of the bacteria and all of the germs that are growing on any surface. Have any of you ever seen that? It's really, it's really disturbing when you see of all, all the germs and things that we don't think of. So if we were to look at my hands under that light, they probably wouldn't look so clean anymore. Why? Well, because I've probably coughed into my hands a few times. Sam, oh, thank you. <clears throat> Got a little Purell there. Uh, I wonder if it works on shirts or hats. <laughs> <laughs> Could try it. Uh, yeah, so they're probably not super clean. I've coughed a few times. I'm sitting next to Sam. He's been hacking up a storm all morning. You know, I've touched a few different doors, and I've probably shaken a couple hundred hands. So if we were to look at my hands under that light, it'd probably be a little terrifying, right? <laughs> so now that no one's going to shake my hand for the rest of the day, see, this is just a ploy so I stay healthy around Christmas Eve. <laughs> I don't have to shake. No, I'm just kidding. So now that no one wants to shake my hands, uh, what's the point of that? Jesus is that ultraviolet light when it comes to the moral filthiness of our hearts. Because to ourselves, when we, when we look in the mirror, we think we look pretty good. We look pretty clean. But when our hearts are put under the right light, and Jesus comes and exposes just how sinful, just how filthy, just how broken we are, we stop and realize, oh, I'm not near as clean as I thought. 
I'm not clean. I'm not acceptable before a holy God. I need the atoning work of Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior, to take away that sin, that brokenness, that guilt, that shame, and rescue me. But you know, not all people like that revelation that they're broken, sinful, guilty, and deserving of God's punishment. That's exactly what we see in verses 10 and 11. We see people that have the wrong response to the revealing light of Christ. So let's look at those verses together. It says this in verse 10. He, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, to the Israelites, to the Jews, and yet his own people did not receive him. In this verse, we see a lot of people who wrongly respond to the revealing ministry of Jesus, the true light. The sinful world, it says that they didn't know him. They didn't understand him. They didn't believe in him. But even worse than that, his own people, the Jewish people, they rejected him as their king and as their Messiah. Even though the entire Old Testament was pointing to Jesus being the Messiah, even though there were 39 books describing in detail what the Messiah would look like and what he would accomplish, they still missed it. I mean, how unbelievable is that? How hard their hearts must have been. I mean, just imagine it this way. Let's say that 17 years ago, when Highland was looking for a new senior pastor, God revealed through uh, just a prophetic vision to the search committee that the next senior pastor of Highland would be a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary in Trinity, husband to a woman named Betty Ann, pronounce God with a funny New England accent and be a little on the vertically challenged side, right? And then Jeff comes and candidates one weekend. And afterwards, the search committee comes. And after he's done preaching, they say, well, at least we know he's not the guy. That'd be a little unmistakable. Four for four, right? He's per- he fulfilled the prophecy. Per- well, that's what Jesus did. He fulfilled them perfectly, and yet still their hearts were hardened, and they rejected Jesus. But it wasn't just his own people. It was the entire world. As John uses that term, world, cosmos, he almost exclusively uses it within his gospel to talk about people living in a state of deliberate disobedience and rebellion towards God. The world is the hostile, hard-hearted people that reject God's revelation. And that's because of our sin nature. Because, Because of our sin nature, mankind is spiritually dead. We are spiritually blind and we're rebellious. And people of the world, they love the darkness and fight against the light. And we see that very clearly in John 3, 19 and 20. It says this, picking up that same metaphor of Jesus being the light. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. They hate Jesus. And they do not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Though Jesus has clearly and undeniably demonstrated that he is the son of God through his miraculous birth, his perfect life, his substitutionary death, and his victorious resurrection, there are many people in this world that continue to harden their hearts towards Christ. And a hard heart, the root of a hard heart, is always the reality that I want to continue being the God of my own life. People harden their hearts to Jesus because they don't like placing their hearts under that ultraviolet light. They like to pretend that they're morally clean and acceptable on their own. They don't need saving. There are people that harden their heart to Jesus because they don't want to submit their lives to him. They want to remain in control. And as long as people see themselves as their own Lord and Savior, they'll never see their need for the true Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
But thankfully, our passage doesn't end with the wrong response. In verse 12, we see the right response. We see how people need to receive and believe Jesus. So let's look at verse 12. It says this in 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I love these verses. Just notice the amazing results of receiving Jesus and believing in him. We get the right through Christ to become children of God. And that's an amazing reversal because scripture tells us apart from Christ, we're children of something else. We're children of God's wrath and punishment. And on our own, there's no way that we can become children of God. This passage makes it clear. Being a child of God, being born again, being saved, doesn't come from the will of the flesh. It doesn't come from the will of man. It only comes through the will of God. It only comes through Christ. So being born again, becoming a child of God, is the work that God does in our hearts that corresponds with us trusting in Jesus Christ, receiving him as Lord, and believing in him as Savior. The only way that we can become God's children is by putting our full and complete trust in the finished work of Christ. So what that means is if we're going to look at whether or not we're children of God, we can't look to our family pedigree. We can't say, am I born to a Christian family? We can't look to our church attendance. We can't look to a general desire to go to heaven. We can't look to our good works. There's nothing that we can look to other than the finished work of Christ. We look at his perfect life, his substitutionary death, and his victorious resurrection. And when we receive Jesus and believe in him, we can become children of God. And that's the heart of the Christmas message. Jesus became the son of man so that we could become the children of God. But none of that works apart from Jesus humbling himself and taking on the form of a servant that we so clearly see in verse 14. So Jeff, why don't you take verse 14 and, and launch into that? I want you to notice that when the three of us got together, Sam said, I'll take the first five verses. Andrew said, I'll take the next five verses. Five plus five is 10 out of 11 verses. They gave me one verse in the season of giving. Really honoring, guys. The red guy has you on the naughty list. It was our Christmas gift to the congregation because if you took verses, we all know we'd still be here on Christmas Day. So, <laughs> what, so you're welcome. Jeff, we would love to hear your one verse. <laughs> Mr. Windy, Mr. Breezy. No, no, no. Pastor Windbag is taking over from here. <laughs> Let me read my one verse. Verse 14. And the word, and Sam already told us that's Jesus, and Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is called the light throughout this passage. Now, if you and I were to have the time to go through the Gospel of John, we would discover that every time John talks about the world, and this is unique to John, he talks about this world, this cosmos, as dark, as dangerous, as devoid of light. For John, this world is not good. For other authors, it is. For John, it is not. And the darkness is dispelled by Christ. It's dispelled by the light. It's dispelled by the salvation 
that Christ alone offers to us through faith in Jesus. Yet another reason Jesus comes is because he is a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. We read in Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but in all things he was tested or tempted, and yet he did not sin. So he came to bring light to darkness. He came to bring salvation to we who need it. And he came to sympathize with us in our weakness. It may be that you're here today and you have a difficult time. You're in pain. You're suffering. There's sickness. There's trial. There's tribulation. Know this. We serve a God whose son, fully God, became fully man lived a perfect life, laid down his life to dispel the darkness, to bring eternal life, and to sympathize with us in our moments of need. As the three of us began to talk, I thought of Alex Haley. You may remember Alex Haley, 1976 Roots. My two millennial friends had never heard of Roots. Now, Roots is a 700-page Pulitzer Prize-winning book that was made into a mini-series. It's all about Kunta Kinte, an 18th century African who was traded, human trafficking, enslaved, and put on a ship, lost his freedom, and came to our country in bondage. Now, when Alex Haley decided to write this, He did a fair amount of research, and he thought, you know, I wonder what it is like to be in the bowels of a ship as a slave. So he got a one-way ticket on a book called The African Star from Liberia to New York. And because he had served in the Coast Guard, he knew his way around the bowels of a ship. And each night, he went down into the bottom of the ship. He stripped himself down to his skivvies, and he laid on coarse wood, wanting to feel what it was like for those who had been free and their freedom taken from him. He made it to the third night. And the third night, he became so violently sick that he could no longer do it. Now, understand that Alex Haley has more understanding, three nights more understanding than I do. But compare that to Christ. The word became flesh, not for three nights, but for 33 years. He left the glories and the splendor of heaven to take on human flesh while retaining his deity. It's a technical term called the hypostatic union, fully God and fully man. And he lived a perfect life. He became the light to dispel the darkness to offer eternal life to us, and to sympathize with us in our time of need. In fact, the text says uh, that he tabernacled with us. It's It's a very technical term. This tabernacled, it's the idea that prior to Solomon building the temple in the 10th century B.C., there was a tent of meeting, set up, taken down, set up, taken down, as the Israelites moved nomadically through the lands. 
and God would meet with man in the tabernacle, later in the temple, but through the incarnation, he met with us through the personhood of Jesus Christ. He tabernacled among us. Now, interestingly enough, that word tabernacle in Hebrew has, as every Hebrew word, three radicals or three consonants, S-K-N. But there's another word in Hebrew that has exactly the same three radicals. Understand that the vowels were added later, that Hebrew words only have three letters, three radicals, and tabernacle corresponds directly with another Hebrew word with exactly the same radicals. It's one that you know, Shekinah, the Shekinah glory. If you know anything about the greatness and the glory and the majesty of God in the Old Testament, he reveals himself in the Shekinah glory. Do we see the significance of saying that Jesus tabernacled with us? It's saying that Jesus has the fullness of the Shekinah glory in himself. No wonder Matthew says the virgin will conceive and give birth with a child, and they will name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The fullness of deity, the fullness of the Shekinah glory dwells in Christ. God became man to dispel the darkness, to offer eternal life, to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. Is it any wonder? Is it any wonder that the angelic host played hooky from choir practice to come down to earth to eavesdrop on what was told to the shepherds? And one of the angels said this, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth on whom his favor rests. And another said, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that shall be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this shall be the sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Wow. God choosing to dwell no longer in a building his Shekinah glory, now in the personhood of Christ, revealed for us that if we would believe and receive him as Savior, we would be given eternal life. Furthermore, remember that the angels came to shepherds out in the Magdal Eder field in Bethlehem, five miles south of Jerusalem. These shepherds are watching over sheep. These are not ordinary sheep. These are slaughter sheep. Remember that. They're slaughter sheep. These sheep have one purpose. They will be taken to the temple. They will be examined to make sure that they are unblemished. And they will be sacrificed as a temporary payment, a temporary atonement, waiting the final atonement, the final sacrifice, the final slaughter sheep. And do you remember what John said? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is not just any sheep. He is the slaughter sheep 
who paid the penalty of our sin on our behalf. And so Isaiah, 700 years earlier, in Isaiah 53 said, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a sheep that was led to the slaughter, he remained silent before the shears. So Christ remained silent. He was slaughtered for us. Emmanuel, the light, the Shekinah glory, came down, took on human flesh, that if we would believe in Christ, receive him as Savior, we would be given eternal life. Thanks, Jeff. That was... um... That was, that was great. One, one dense verse. Look at that. That was great. 10 minutes, 15 minutes on one verse. You see why you got one, but that was, that was very helpful Nine stuff. Nine minutes. Nine minutes. No, I was timing. Uh, Jared, Jared said 20. Jared says 20. So anyway, uh, so as we seek to, as we just seek to apply what we've even been talking about this morning, what, what do we do with this? How do we prepare our hearts for Christmas right now? Well, first with what Pastor Jeff was just talking about, Jesus being the ultimate sacrificial lamb, Jesus being the the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And even going back to the verses that I was talking about, we need to first ask our questions, have I truly received and believed in Jesus? Uh, Am I trusting in my salvation, in my spiritual birth, in the finished work of Christ or or something else? And if you've never received and believed in Jesus, uh, make sure to do that today before, before you walk out. Make sure to prepare your heart by recognizing you need that sacrificial lamb. You need Jesus to come and to take away the broken and the sin and the guilt and the shame of your heart, and that only comes through Christ. Uh, But for those of us that have put our faith in Christ, who are children of God by receiving and believing, I think we can apply this passage by living out that identity this week and really every single day of being children of God. So what does that look like to be a child of God? Well, first, I think it means that we're listening to God. Uh, We're spending time with our Father by reading his word, by listening to the message that he has for us. We're spending time talking to our Father, cultivating that relationship with prayer and really coming before his presence and spending time with him. Uh, We're trying to obey the family guidelines and the family rules that God gives us. In scripture, God kind of tells us the rules of the household. If we're going to be members of his family, there's a certain way that he desires for us to live. And as obedient children, we want to honor our Father And then lastly, we can live with the unshakable knowledge that uh, we are loved by God, that nothing can separate us from his love. He's our father, and we can come to him uh, anytime we want. So we can live out our identity as children of God, knowing that we've trusted in in Christ. Yes, I love this passage because it focuses both on Jesus' full deity and his humanity, the hypostatic union, as Jeff said. But let's just dial in for a second on what it means for us, that Jesus was fully man. That means that we have a God that can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. So Jesus experienced the same sort of pain, the heartache, even the temptation that comes with life, as Jeff read from Hebrews chapter 4. In the Christmas season, it can be a great time of, of celebration, but it can also be a time of pain and heartache. Maybe we miss the loved ones that we've lost, that we wish were around the tree with us or coming to the Christmas Eve services with us. Maybe Christmas reminds us of the painful mistakes that we've made. Maybe we mourn the family that we've never lost or that we've never had. But if we know Christ, we have the comfort of a God that can sympathize with us in our weakness, with our pain, with our heartache, 
And that if that's us this Christmas season, then we can cry out to Jesus because he knows and he feels our pain. Finally, I think we have to remind ourselves to spend time in worship of Christ. I don't know about you, but I can get lost in the hustle and the bustle. There's so many wonderful things. There's parties and presents and trees and for newlyweds, mistletoe. There's wonderful things about Christmas. But I want to remember to worship Christ. One of the things I often do is uh, when I'm in my office, I tell my Alexa, the little one, high tech here, to turn on 89Q to listen to the hymns of the faith during Christmas. And it just soothes my heart and prepares my heart for worship. As I think about this, I think of how I would prepare for worship years ago in Pennsylvania. I pastored a church there, and every Christmas Eve, we'd have one or two services, and at the conclusion of them, Betty Ann and the kids would get in the car, and we'd drive a couple hours to our in-laws, my in-laws, Betty Ann's parents, and Betty Ann and the kids would sleep, and it was perfect for me. Because I put the music on, the, the hymns of Christmas, and it would remind me again of why we're celebrating Christ and, and what we're doing, and it would soothe my heart and prepare me to worship Jesus. I remember one particular Christmas Eve, the worship pastor got me to do something I have never done since and never will. Our worship pastor was a maestro named Pastor Brian Whitaker. Yep, he was with me in Pennsylvania as well. And uh, he said, you know, I really need to travel the day before Christmas Eve to be with my family. Man, was that a bad decision on my part. But he said, I'll get all the ducks in a row, and when we have the Christmas Eve service, you won't need to worry. I said, great. And in fairness to Brian, he got all the ducks in a row. Now, this particular Christmas Eve, we were going to have a couple early ones, and for the first time, we were going to have an 11 o'clock Christmas Eve service. Our community was very traditional. Lots of churches have an 11 o'clock, so we thought we would do it, invite the community to our church, and the first couple of services, they went great. But after the 7 o'clock, so at about 8.15, I am not exaggerating, every musician and every singer individually came to me and told me they caught the flu. They were sick. They would not be there at 11 o'clock. What was I going to do? Like whistle silent night? Could we have a demonstration of that right now? <laughs> I will not so bless you. <laughs> I had no musician, no singer. And at that point, uh, two sisters bailed me out. One was a very gifted pianist. The other was a very gifted violinist. They came up. They were separated by a lot of years. One was much older than the other. They said, we won't be leading congregational singing, but we'll come up with four specials. So we'll have your, your sermon and four specials through the night. And I said, oh, thank you, Jesus. And my family went and grabbed a bite to eat, and these two gals they sat down, and remember, they were separated by a lot of years, so they didn't grow up in the house together. They had never played together, and so they had a few hours to figure out what hymns they knew in common. They didn't know any in common. 
In fact, what they discovered was the only music they knew was wedding music. Pachbell on Christmas Eve. I'm not making this up. They played four wedding songs on Christmas Eve in a traditional community that we invited. Do you know what Pachbell is like with candlelight? Not very good. I was smoking, and I'm not talking Cubans. What were you smoking? <laughs> you'll have to wait for your stocking on Christmas. Oh, no. Maybe you'll find out. But I was just so hot. And I piled my family in the car. It was about 12.30. And we began to drive to my in-laws, Betty Ann and the kids. Uh, they were sleeping, and I put the hymns on. It took a lot more than normal. But the hymns <laughs> began to soothe my heart. And I began to remember again that Christmas Eve isn't about a perfect service. It isn't about everything being done so that a young pastor isn't embarrassed. It's about Christ. And by the time I got to my in-laws, I had remembered it was about Christ. And so as uh, Sam and Andrew and I walk off, I've asked that one of my favorite songs, Mary, did you know, be sung to prepare our hearts for the Christ of Christmas. <laughs> 